Hello, everybody. You're all very welcome to 10 by 9. Welcome back to 10 by 9 on Zoom. Zoom by 9. It's nice to see you. I hope you're all very well. I hope that um, your your home life is okay. And as everything begins, it seems to go back to a little bit more of lockdown. I hope that all is good for you. Um, Paul's in Belfast, I'm in Fermanagh. It is great to see you. We have a fantastic evening of stories for you um, tonight. Nine stories. We were going to be in the black box, but then last week with everything beginning to change, um, it all just made a lot more sense for us to <laughs> minimize the possibility of any spread of this terrible Omicron. Omicron. People that I know were arguing about how to pronounce it properly. So there we are. We can all see each other. It's lovely to see your faces. and. Um, uh, while we were glad in a certain sense to uh, be able to get back to the black box, it's also lovely to be able to get back to doing 10 by 9 on Zoom, to be able to see people who live further afield, part of our um, 10 by 9 international groups of people, the diaspora of 10 by 9 folks who are in all kinds of places. Um, I hope you're all very, very well, and I hope that nothing is strange with you. Um, I uh, flew, Paul and I, I've been living in New York since October and I'll be there until May. I'm just home for a couple of weeks at Christmas. And um, Paul and I flew back on Friday from New York. Paul had been out visiting and um, I had, um, we had obviously tested negative before we um, flew. But then when I got back on Saturday, I began to not feel very well. And Saturday afternoon, I got some tests and indeed I do have the dreaded um, COVID so um, I phoned my mother to tell her and she said to me, do you have the new one now or the old one? And my mother was particularly co concerned that I should have the more fashionable version of Omicron, the latest up-to-date version. And so I am coming to you with the most fashionable COVID um, that it's possible to have. <coughs> I'm not sure when I had it. Amazing that Whatever it was, it wasn't it wasn't traceable on Friday, but uh, by Saturday it was most definitely there. Anyway, um, I, it's not spreadable over Zoom, and if I do um, pass out at any point, sure we'll have a good story to tell at another ten by nine when I have um, recovered. Please welcome Bob Salisbury. My. Uh story this time is called The Christmas Corpse. Um, my wife and I have both been uh, owners of dogs for many years. We usually have black Labradors and we have a couple at the moment, fit working dogs that need a lot of exercise. And this story is um, a couple of days before Christmas, a few years ago. It was one of those uh, magical mornings uh, when the whole country is covered in hoarfrost and it had cloaked everything you know crystals transform the landscape into wonderful shapes and patterns and the the tussocky grass crackled underfoot as the two labradors and i began our training exercise they were working in tandem that sort of moving from one side of the field to the other and turning together once once i blew the whistle at the edge of the woodland, though, they disappeared, refused to obey the recall command, and then began a duet of deep-throated growling and barking. This behaviour was very unusual, reserved for guard dog duties back at home. 
in the countryside, it was really out of character. Intruder in the woods, I thought, and strode forward to investigate. The dogs were snarling at what seemed to be a pile of old newspapers lying in a ditch. They bounced around, kicking up a huge din in the cold air, clearly agitated, suspicious at what their noses were telling them. Here, sit. Reluctantly, they came to my side and silence returned to the icy landscape. What is it, I said, as I moved nearer to the ditch. Newspapers, now covered in a layer of hard frost, had been spread out across what looked like the size and shape of a body. And the image seemed to shake my whole being. I stood frozen like the land around me for what seemed like minutes, staring, shocked, by what I now assume was under the covering. There was absolutely no movement. Better phone the police, I said aloud. Then thought that would be stupid if under the papers wasn't what I feared it was. Looking back, I've tried to work out why the discovery of a body on that winter morning shocked me quite so much. You wouldn't know it now, but I used to consider myself a bit of an action man rock climbing, rugby, that sort of thing. So why this extreme reaction? I think it was because where I grew up, death was always kept at a distance with coffin lids immediately sealed and the remains hurriedly moved off to some distant waiting room. There was no filing past the waxy face or the steady throngs of well-wishers, remembering a life lived while waiting for the tea and sandwiches. None of the black humour endemic to many of the wakes in Ireland. I once remember being quite shocked when one morner looking at the suntan face of a neighbour who had died whilst on holiday in Spain, Spain said, Looks like the break did him good. Procedures in my past were more secretive and impersonal. So little wonder that coming across a corpse in the ditch that day made such an impact. Reluctantly, I squatted down, stretched out my arm, gingerly prized up one end of the frozen newspapers, which immediately snapped in my fingers and peered under. A black leather shoe, an ankle and trouser ends were visible. But in truth, it's difficult to recall precisely what happened next. I remember the clock striking eight in the distant church tower a second or so before the corpse exploded upwards, a face and torso bouncing out from the frozen papers like a jack-in-a-box. I have to be honest, I very nearly shat myself, let out a yell that could be heard for miles and fell backwards into the ditch. With no warning, I was staring into the face of a bearded man, wild-looking, terrified. The dogs instantly went on to attack mode, thunderous growls, hair raised, eyes laced with menace, threatening. No, no, the body screamed, covering his face with his gloved hands, cowering from the canine teeth, which now were inches from his face. I scrambled out of the ditch on all fours and managed to call off the dogs, 
recovering a little, I said, it's okay, it's okay, they won't hurt you. He was whimpering, taking in great gulfs of the frozen air, and his whole body shook in alarming spasms. He'd obviously just waken from a deep sleep, woken from a deep sleep. I poured a cup of coffee from the flask in my bag and handed it over to him. He nodded and held the offering tightly in both hands, warming his gloved fingers. He was a youngish looking man and at first glance didn't seem like the normal vagrant. Expensive overcoat, good quality shoes, black leather gloves. What are you doing here? I asked. He'd calmed down a little and after a pause began to tell me his story. His voice, educated but hoarse. Apparently since early childhood, he'd always wanted to make money. Wheeling and dealing had all been a normal part of life. And in his early 20s, when fashion for men was beginning to take off, he rented a shop and began selling trendy men's clothes, imitation Cromwell coats, jeans and boots, bother boy fashion, he called it. The business was an immediate success. Often on Saturday mornings, there were queues outside the shop waiting for the open sign to go up. Exciting times. He sipped the coffee and then went on. He'd expanded the business rapidly, borrowed money, sometimes from relatives or friends, sometimes from banks. Soon he had a chain of shops across the country. He admitted at times he'd been ruthless and trampled on many as his empire grew to take advantage of this boom time. Old friends and early supporters were left behind as his wealth increased and his executive mansion and top of the range car announced to the world that he'd finally made it. The crash when it came took him totally by surprise. One minute his shops were thriving, the next his styles were deemed cheap and unsophisticated. Sales plummeted, unprofitable shops had to be closed staff laid off, but still the decline continued. In the end, he lost house, wife, everything, and was left penniless. My luck finally ran out and I was left only with the clothes I was standing up in. I lodged with a friend for a few weeks, but that didn't work out. Hostels are scary places if you're not used to it. So all through the summer, I've been sleeping rough. Where are you heading now? I asked. Don't really know. Christmas is not a good time for the homeless. Why don't you come with me for a bite to eat and a glass or two of something? Thanks, he said. The man got slowly to his feet and followed me and the dogs across the crackling meadow. No doubt he was thinking of what once was. As for me, I was pondering how quickly things which seem to be running smoothly can suddenly turn sour. Life can be a lottery at times. Merry Christmas. Tonight, our final story is from the wonderful Gita Meaton in Scotland. <laughs> 
It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And this is a tale not of two cities, but of two skin-tight polyester jumpsuits. In the before COVID times, the work party night was a fixture of my December calendar. And I've probably been to about 20 of the things over the years, and there's a predictable pattern. At 6.30, the taxi beeps outside and I squeeze in beside my work friends, the air heavy with competing perfumes and the pre-game Prosecco. And I love to see our nurses and admin staff out of their blue uniforms in their sequins and their heels all gorgeous and glittery. And inside the hotel function room crammed with other work groups were fed a school dinner style masticated Christmas meal. We drink an unwise amount and then we take to the dance floor wearing paper hats and boas made of tinsel until the minibuses and taxis take us home. And the wine on the table is marked red or white, which I suppose is accurate. And it's immediately heartburn inducing stuff, staining our teeth purple. But from experience, the best way to get through the evening is just to keep downing it, plunging deeply into the bottle like an Amish teenager on Rumspringer, because after the meal is over, the dancing starts and it's best to have lost a few inhibitions by then. And of those 20 party nights, there are two which stand out and weirdly both involve skin tight jumpsuits. The first was with the out of hours doctor service in a hotel which seemed to be in the arse end of nowhere. And by the time the coach had twisted and turned round every housing estate in Country Road, my stomach was churning. And the food was what it always was. Reheated turkey slices and gelatinous gravy, cold pre-frozen roast potatoes and soggy sprouts. And the table was long and cramped. The room noisy and conversation meant getting close enough to my boss that I could count his ear hairs as I leant in. And after the lukewarm coffee was served, we were treated to a comedian so profoundly offensive that I longed for the awkward too close conversation. A room full of lefty liberal doctors was probably a tough crowd for his routine of mental health jokes liberally sprinkled with misogyny, homophobia and a side of racism. So I kept my eyes on my after dinner mint wrapper folding and unfolding it into tiny foil squares but worse was to come. Because next up was Scotland's number one Freddie Mercury impersonator. And onto the tiny stage he strutted, much smaller than he looked on stars in their eyes, his hair slicked back, his moustache immaculate, a yellow jacket over his white polyester jumpsuit. And he belted out hit after hit, prowling from table to table with his wireless mic, and I was uncomfortably close to the front. I reached for more wine, praying that he'd not head in my direction, but I was in prime position and he'd locked on to his next target. Deeply lunging so that his foot was on my table, he struck his classic Freddy power pose, chin to the ceiling, my head at crotch height. And I could see the outline of his white thong under the lycra, And if you want to know if he was circumcised or not, you can ask me in the chat. But I can tell you that his left ball hung significantly lower than the right. And the whole glorious vision was dripping with sweat. Don't stop me now, he belted spittle, gently misting my face. If only I could have stopped him. 
because the bus trip and the greasy meal and the cheap wine was now all being replaced by the queasiness of a personal table dance by a small, intensely sweaty Scottish man. And what is the correct face to make under such circumstances? I aimed for a kind of serene neutrality, the face I make when looking at something horrendously oozy, when I don't want to let the patient know that I'm this close to vomiting. And eventually, he moved on to a more responsive table of postmenopausal ladies out for a girls' night who reacted as though the cast of Magic Mike had arrived to kickstart their ovaries. And I wiped his sweat off my shoulder with a paper napkin and drank some more cheap wine. And that was polyester jumpsuit number one. And the second was a few years later when the medical practice I now worked at booked our annual party night. And this time the entertainment was an ABBA tribute act. Benny and Bjorn on the flyer filling their jumpsuits like homemade sausages. And one of the doctor team decided that as they were two male doctors and two female, it would be fun to prank the rest of the staff by turning up in our own ABBA outfits. And when we laughingly ordered the costumes in June, it had been hilarious, but now as the evening drew closer, I was having some doubts. Now to put you in the picture, Neil, Paul and Helen are the stereotype of the health conscious doctor, marathon running, road biking, Ironman competing freaks of self-discipline with 2% body fat and the confidence that goes with it. And I, on the other hand, am not. And at the time, I was a few months back from maternity leave on the lumpier side of things and with the body confidence of a bullied teenager. So to illustrate one of my first encounters at the health centre as the brand new doctor went a bit like this, patient, oh, how fantastic a fat doctor. They're all so bloody skinny in here. Me, thanks. I'm glad I've made you feel comfortable. That patient's flu jab needle got an extra wee wiggle that year. I'm only joking, sort of. So when the other three arrived to collect me, I was standing in my made in China silver jumpsuit in front of the hall mirror, trying in vain to convince myself that I could leave the house looking like a foil wrapped burrito. And I'd had half a bottle of Prosecco while getting ready and was waiting for the alcohol haze to take me out of my body. It did not. Arriving at the hotel, I realised that getting out of the house had been the easy bit and heading for the entrance with the other three looking frankly pretty damn sexy. I felt as though I was in one of those anxiety dreams where you're fully nude in a room full of people. There was no waking up. And just inside the door, our whole practice team waited. Time slowed as they took in our strange tribute to the Tribute Act a mixture of horror and pity soon replaced by laughter, and not just by our little group, but all the other party goers around the room nudging one another and pointing. So I kept drinking, and so did we all. And eventually, as the tribute act took to the stage, we became the centre of attention on the dance floor. The boys had to pair up to go to the bathroom, as running the gauntlet through a crowd of disinhibited middle-aged ladies became a serious health hazard. I'm sure they had questions to answer the next morning when their wives spotted the, scat spotted the scattering of bruises on their toned bums from all the pinching. No one pinched my bum, which I was a little offended by, but slowly the embarrassment faded or the wine took over. And there were a few advantages. 
people kept sending us drinks, which was nice. And when I spilled my turkey and gravy down my front, silver polyester is surprisingly wiped clean. And the zip made for easy access when I needed a wee, no layers of spanks or tights to navigate under the party dress. And we even got a wave and a cheer from the real ABBA on stage. And those two nights might have felt like some of the worst of times, but now in this endless COVID hellscape, I find myself longing for silly nights out with messy, tipsy friends. And I find myself nostalgic for uncomfortable outfits and the warmth of those oversharing, heartfelt, top volume conversations in the ladies. And I miss remembering that after a bottle or two of cheap red wine, we're all dancing queens deep down. And the fact that if we're ever on a night out together, it's a guarantee that at some point I'm going to cup your face in my hands and tell you that I love you. You've been warned. And I hope that someday soon we'll be singing Mariah Carey on a minibus back home and getting the driver to stop for chips. And then walking to the front door, dangling my heels in one hand and remembering too late that our driveway's gravel and then texting the group chat to remind everyone to have a pint of water and ibuprofen before getting into bed. So maybe in the end, those really were the best of times. And in fact, I wonder if that Freddie Mercury guy's got any gigs in 2022. Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, Gita, I can't wait for you to cup my face and give me a big kiss and tell me how much you love me. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear from any of you who have stories to tell. If you think, look, I've got a great story, but I'm not sure what theme it would fit, you can always just send us a bit of the story, send us an outline, and we'll make sure to find a theme that it fits with. We're always delighted to hear true stories from your own life. And as we finish, we want to wish you a happy Christmas and a happy new year. 